We're Missio Phoenix, a community of God's people learning to live in God's ways for the sake of our city. Book of Jeremiah in your Bible. I want to play a little game first. Uh, let's let's practice kind of throwing out what are the most cliche Bible verses that you've heard. That, yeah, you already know where we're going, right? <laughs> Go ahead and say it louder. Yeah, yeah. Hey, that was good. You almost got all of it. Yeah, Jeremiah twenty nine eleven. Any others? Any other kind of cliche Bible verses? I, I hate putting that with a cliche in Bible verses. All, it's all like the word of the Lord, right? <laughs> Inspired by the Holy Spirit, given to the church. But there's certain ones that have become, in our culture, what we call cliche. And so what, what, what are some of the other ones? About, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, right? Philippians. Yeah, good job. So that, that's one you will often see on like an Instagram page of someone who's doing like their, their own, they're starting their own fitness Instagram business, you know, and they're like getting their gains in and they're squatting and they're like, I can do all things through Christ, including lifting this 340 pounds, right? Uh, what else? Any others? Yeah, all things work together for God's glory and the good of those who love him. Usually we leave out the God's glory part when we're repeating that, just all things work together for my good, right? Maybe one more. John 3.16, I was wondering if that would come up. Yeah, John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that all who believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life, right? Now, here's the thing. Again, we should never, like, look at those as cliche. I actually, like, I'm praying for the Lord to help me with this because there's times where certain verses will come up, someone will say it, and I'll catch myself starting to roll my eyes. I'm like, wait a second, this is the word of God here, right? But when I do rule my eyes in a just way is when that verse is taken way out of context and it's applied to something that actually has nothing to do with what the scripture is about. And Jeremiah 29.11 is one of those. Jeremiah 29.11, I'm going to read it for us here just so we have it all. Tammy did a great job getting most of it. Uh, But verse 11 in Jeremiah chapter 29, for I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, or in my translation, the CSB is the Lord's declaration. Plans for your well-being, not for a disaster, to give you a future and a hope. And we love that, right? We love the idea of that. We love that, oh man, like life is going to go well for me, like the Lord has promised it. I know the plans I have for you. Plans not for disaster, but for a future and a hope and a brand new car, right? For a better paying job. And, and this is what we like to apply these things to, like for a great 37th year of life. So I woke up this morning, and I was like, oh, plans for a future. I'm still alive. I'm still kicking. Here we go. But what we're going to find is the context of verse 11 in Jeremiah 29 is so different than what typically we like to apply it to in our lives here and today. But for starters, it was spoken over a group of people who are not us, first and foremost. Now, it's God's word, and it's still given to his people today, so does it still have something for us today? Absolutely. We wouldn't spend time talking about it today if it didn't, right? But we have to remember, uh, first, 
who was spoken by or through and who was spoken to, right? The second, we remember that those people, in the context of where they find themselves, is not in a hopeful situation. It's not in a good situation. It's not going into uh, the anticipation of a job interview, and I know the plans the Lord has for me, I'm going to get this job. Right? It's, it's actually in the context of destruction. At least so it seems to them in the moment. It's in the context of another nation coming and taking them into captivity, ripping them from their homes and their families and their land that God had promised to them, and taking them to a foreign place where they now have to live life. And God's reminding them, listen, I know the plans I have for you. I still have you in my hands. That's the, that's the pre-sermon warm-up right there, okay? What we're going to do is read Jeremiah 29, verses 1 through 11, or actually 1 through 13. And just remember, like, verse 11 is just a small part of that, right? There's a whole lot more for us to read in there. So 13 verses. This is the text of the letter that the prophet Jeremiah sent from Jerusalem to the remaining exiled elders, the priests, the prophets, and all the people Nebuchadnezzar had deported from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King Jeconiah, the queen mother, the court officials, the officials of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen and the metalsmiths had left Jerusalem. He sent the letter with Elasa, son of Shaphan, and Gemariah, son of Hilkiah whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to Babylon to King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. A lot of names. Let's focus here. The letter stated, This is what the Lord of armies, the God of Israel, says to all the exiles I deported from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Find wives for yourselves and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters to men in marriage so that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there. Do not decrease. Pursue the well-being of the city I have deported you to. Pray to the Lord on its behalf, for when it thrives, you will thrive. For this is what the Lord of armies, the God of Israel, says. Do not let your prophets who are among you and your diviners deceive you. And don't listen to the dreams you elicit from them. For they are prophesying falsely to you in my name. I have not sent them. This is the Lord's declaration. For this is what the Lord says. When 70 years for Babylon are complete, I will attend to you and will confirm my promise concerning you to restore you to this place. For I know the plans I have for you. This is the Lord's declaration. Plans for your well-being, not for disaster. To give you a future and a hope. You will call to me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me. Find me when you search for me with all of your heart. This is God's word. Father, we ask that you would help us to see you, to seek you, to find you through your word this morning. May your spirit be here present with us in our midst, opening our eyes, opening our hearts, opening our minds. God, may we become more and more what you have called us to be. We ask this in Jesus' name, for the glory of the Father, by the power of the Spirit, amen. All right, so that very beginning part, it's giving us the, the setup for it. This is what the context of this letter is. The first three verses, this is the text of the letter the prophet Jeremiah sent from Jerusalem to the remaining exiled elders. Here's the context. Here's what's happened. Babylon has come in just as God said that they would through his prophets. 
They've come in and they've taken into captivity the best of Israel. See, they're smart. They knew you don't just go in and like see, take siege, lay waste over a nation and make them bow their knee by force. But what you do is you take the best of the best. So this is, this is what we're told is sent over, deported from Jerusalem to Babylon. It says that the officials of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen, the metalsmiths, right? The, the queen mother, the court officials, taking the people of the highest stature, people of the highest status, taking people who were skilled at what they did and taking them to go live with them in their city, Babylon. And while there, and we know more of this from the story of the book of Daniel, while there, some of them actually were invited to live in the kingdom, in the palace there. They would learn the Babylonian ways. They would learn their astrology. They would learn to follow after their gods. They would dress in their wardrobes. They would eat their food. They would become accustomed to their customs. They were converting them. Babylonians. And then what they would do is they would, they would send them back. Now you, most influential and skilled people of your people, go back to your home and influence them in the ways of Babylon. It's brilliant. It's a really, really intelligent way to spread your empire out. So King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon had sent his people to go and take into captivity like the best of the best, the cream of the crop of Israel. And Jeremiah is writing a letter to those people, the ones who were taken from Israel out of their homes and taken to Babylon. And we're told here that they were brought into captivity by King Nebuchadnezzar. But verse 4, this is what the Lord of armies, the God of Israel, says to the exiles that who deported? This is what the Lord of armies, the God of Israel, says to the exiles I deported from Jerusalem to Babylon. He says it again later in the letter. God deported the Israelites from Jerusalem into Babylon. Wait a second, I thought it was Nebuchadnezzar. I thought it was the Babylonians. I thought it was the bad guys, right? No, no, no. God's saying, I did this. That's kind of a hard pill to swallow, right? Like, why would God do that? God was using Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon as a tool to do his plans and his purposes. I know the plans I have. And even if, Israel, you have failed to partner with me in those plans, I will find a way for it to happen. Have you ever found yourself in a place where you're like, what am I doing here? Why am I here right now? I remember one time I walked into the wrong class my first year at GCC, Glendale Community College. I walked into GCC, into the wrong class, and it took me about 15 minutes to realize I was in the wrong class. I'm a little slow. And I was like, what am I doing here? But I thought the class was fascinating, and I decided to take it. <laughs> it was a philosophy class. I was like, you know what? This is interesting. I think I'll stick around for a bit. I should probably go see the counselor, though, and make sure I actually get credit for it. I I think God used that situation. Like, it wasn't just an accident that I stumbled into the wrong classroom. God brought me there for a reason. 
and it helped shape and form some things. The instructor actually was a believer. We had some great conversations and some great discussions as a class. But have you found yourself in that place? You're like, what am I doing here? Why am I here? Why is this happening to me? What is going on? God, where are you in this? Right? And in one of the worst circumstances for Israel's history, that they're taken captive by another nation, a nation that doesn't believe in the God that they believe in, doesn't fear him, doesn't serve him, and they're forced to live that nation's ways. God's saying, hey, I'm doing this. I brought you here for his plans, for his purposes. So then the question is, all right, so what's his plan? Like, what's he doing with this? What's he up to? What's going on here? So this is what the letter says, verse 4. I'm sorry, verse 5. This is what he says to them. The ones that I sent and deported into Babylon, verse 5, build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Find wives for yourselves and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters to men in marriage so that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there. Do not decrease. I want us to pause right there and just kind of summarize what we just heard. Make this your home. Tend to the garden. Be fruitful and multiply. Right? Let's not miss the significance of that. Make this your home, tend to the garden, be fruitful and multiply. Where have we heard that before? Yeah, creation, right? Genesis 1. God makes a home and a space for his humans. And he calls them to be caretakers and cultivators of, I promise I don't just try to say that word as much as we can because of cultivate coffee. It, really, he called them to be caretakers and cultivators of the garden that he placed them in, Right? And he tells them, be fruitful and multiply. We have in here, in this letter, thousands of years later with Jerusalem, with the Israelites, that God's repeating the same creational mandate he gave with the very first two humans. That in a sense, you could say God is restoring their humanity. He's restoring their purpose as humans, what they were created to be, his representatives, partnering with him to care for his good world. That even after all the mess that humans had made in this world, even after all the brokenness, even after all the rebellion, time and time again, Israel turning their backs on God, worshiping other gods, that God is saying, I have not given up on my plan and my purpose for my people. You are still called into this. I am making a home for you, even in exile. I'm making a home for you. Tend to the garden there. See that it flourishes. And be fruitful and multiply. Don't decrease in that land. Keep multiplying. So thousands and thousands of years later, as we sit here in this room now, in Phoenix in 2021, do you know that God still has the same plan and purpose for his people? This is, this is a home we have here. Right? Make a home here. You're not here in Phoenix by mistake. You're not here in this room by mistake. God has you specifically here in this specific time and place for his specific purpose. Now, that's not like I'm, I'm not trying to freak you out and overwhelm you and go like, oh, what does God want me to do? Like, I don't know what his plans are. What is his plans and purpose? Make a home here. Tend to the garden. Care for it. 
fruitful and multiply. See that this land flourishes. That's what we're called into. There is a plan and a purpose and a reason, missio, that we are here, this small little body of people, that we're here in this city. I know a lot of times we think about like we're in our context, like we're in the promised land. We're probably much more like in Babylon than we are in Jerusalem. Because we're in a nation of people who do not know the Lord, who do not follow after his ways, and who are trying to convert us to live in theirs. Right? And so living here as exiles, as people truly of God, in a land that doesn't fear God, what are we called to do? Make a home here. See that it flourishes. And multiply God's family. So let's go on. Restating the creation mandate, what God has for his humans. Verse 7, then he says this, Pursue the well-being of the city I have, there it is again, God has done this, that I have deported you to. Pray to the Lord on its behalf, for when it thrives, you will thrive. Now there's just like this common sense kind of carrot dangling before them, like, listen, it's going to go well for you if the city goes well, right? You now live in it. You have no choice. You're here. So when it does well, you will do well. But the heart and the intent of the message is this. See that it flourishes because I've placed you here. Because you're my representatives. Israel was called to be blessed so that they could be a blessing, right? They were called to be a light to the nations. They were called to be a royal priesthood, to show the rest of the nations what their God was like. And they failed time and time again at it. In fact, what they did was they built up their own borders to stay away from the other nations, to keep them out. And so, what does God do? He disperses his people there. God will accomplish his plans and purposes. Question is, are we going to partner with him? Or will we get dragged along kicking and screaming? I got to preach Jonah this morning for Tempe. Uh, we didn't do Jonah here because we just actually preached through the whole book of Jonah at the end of 2020. And so I figured you guys have heard enough of that. Let's hear this message from Jeremiah. Uh, but that was the story of Jonah, right? God still accomplished his plan and his purpose. Jonah just came along dragging, kicking and screaming the whole way like a little child wanting to rebel against it. But God still did what God set out to do. So Seek the welfare of the city. Pray for it. See that it does well so that you would do well also. And then he says this, verse 8, For this is what the Lord of armies, the God of Israel, says, Don't let your prophets who are among you, your diviners, deceive you. Don't listen to the dreams that you elicit from them. This is what's happening in the context they had other prophets who were trying to say, hey, I know this looks dark, I know this looks bad, but we're God's promised chosen people. Surely he's not going to stand for this. God is going to release us soon. We're going to get out of here, out of Babylon, and we're going to crush them because they're our enemies. They were basically trying to tickle the ear of what the people wanted to hear. Because when you're a prophet and you say things that the, the mass wants to hear, Guess who looks really good? Guess who gets lots of favor? Guess who gets balloons on the stage, right? But if you're a prophet like Jeremiah or Zephaniah, and you're going on saying, no, 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 actually, this is what the Lord says, and it's not going to look good for us. Guess who wasn't very popular? 
So there were some prophets that were taken right along with them, and they're learning how to divine and, and tell prophecies like the Babylonian prophets were. And they're telling the Israelites, don't worry, don't worry, everything's going to be fine. And Jeremiah is saying, stop listening to them. Don't listen to the dreams that you elicit from them, right? Like if you, if you want to hear something, you're going to like pull that out of it. Like no matter how many times... Uh, you, I sit in a message like, I, there's always this part of me that wants to hear what I want to hear. You know what I'm saying? Like, you're, you're, you're saying, like, this prophet, tell, hey, tell us what we want. Tell us God's going to come rescue us right now. Tell us God's going to provide for us. Like, they're just begging for it. And they're like, yeah, sure, whatever you want to hear. God's saying, stop listening to that. I did not send them. You are where you are because you're being disciplined. Israel. I'm not talking to you guys. You're where you are. You might be in Phoenix because you're being disciplined. I don't know. Sometimes in June it feels that way, right? God says to Israel, you're where you are because you're being disciplined because you failed to live up to partnering with me and my plans and purposes. But I will succeed in my plans and purposes from right where you are. Through you even. And we go on. We see this. Verse 10. This is what the Lord says. For when 70 years for Babylon are complete, I will attend to you and will confirm my promise concerning you to restore you to this place, for I know the plans I have for you. Plans for your well-being, not for disaster, to give you a future and a hope. God's saying, I have not given up on you. You're here for a season to learn your lesson, and also to be a light to this nation like you were always supposed to be. But I will fulfill my promise of bringing you into the land. I will restore you back to that. I will restore you to the fullness of what it looks like to be in full partnership with me. If you remember a couple years ago, if you were with us, we taught through the book of Daniel, and what we found getting toward the end of the book of Daniel is actually that 70 years promised. God comes to Daniel and goes, actually, hey, 70 times 7. I'm not done here yet. Because God's people were still kicking and screaming and not partnering with him. All right, this season has to be extended now. But yet, in the end, God's still true to his word. He brings them out. They're able to rebuild the wall, and that's what we're going to look at in the next couple weeks. With Ezra and Nehemiah, when they come out of captivity, when they come out of exile, that God is faithful to restore them to their land. But this is what God wants from them in the meantime. While they're in exile while they're in hardship, while they're in pain, while they're wondering what in the world is going on, while they're looking to people to tickle their ears and tell them, oh, God, God's going to come rescue us tomorrow. Don't worry. God wants them to actually see him in the midst of all that. To see him at work. To look for him. To turn aside from the idols that they're worshiping. To turn away from the other things of the world they're looking at and look toward him. So this is what he says in verse 12. You will call to me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. There's this you will. It's like that's a future tense, right? God's people had not been doing that. What is God doing here? He is turning their hearts back to him. Through this, through this tough season, you will turn and you will seek after me. 
you will look to me, you will pray to me, and when you do, you'll find me. I'll be right there, and I'll answer. I want to help contextualize this a little bit, and so I got some help from my friend Charlie Mio. He is one of the pastors of Missio Tempe, where I was this morning. And uh, when I told him I was in Jeremiah 29 this morning, he sent me something that he wrote a while back when they taught through Jeremiah. And what he did is he kind of rewrote this letter to the exiles of Israel for us today. So hear this. To Missio Dei, God's people scattered throughout the valley. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, might, emphasis on might because we are not putting words in God's mouth, but rewriting, uh, contextualizing these words to us today. This is what he might say to us living as exiles in the empire we are in today. First, get settled. Don't overlook the neighborhood God has placed you in. Embrace it. Pick up groceries for the elderly man down the street. Pull in your neighbor's trash can. Wave to the neighbor who looks angry. Offer to help with yard work. Invite the new family over for dinner. Know the names and the stories of those who live on your street. Pray for them. Make this a home. Second, keep working. Whether you're filling spreadsheets, changing diapers, pulling espresso shots, administering an IV, keep at it. It all matters. Don't grow weary. Don't give up. The harvest is coming, and your tender care of God's creation is praiseworthy. Tend to the garden, right? Third, be family. Raise God-fearing kids who will follow Jesus wherever he leads them. Extend your family to include singles, widows, and orphans. Share the everyday stuff of life together. Always add another chair at your table for dinner. Be there for one another in moments of celebration, in moments of loss, and in the ordinary moments in between. Be fruitful and multiply. Remember the promise. Look up at the night sky and remember God's promise to Abraham to increase his people more numerous than the stars. No empire or king can stop his purposes. No political party will sabotage his desire to bless the world. Five, seek the flourishing of your city and nation. Replace your nationalism with a healthy patriotism. Love your city and your country deeply, yet hate its idolatry. That's what Israel was called to do in Babylon. Actually love it, care for it, but don't worship its gods. Instead of tearing down, work together to reform the systems and institutions that are broken. Remember that the true test of a city's health is if the most vulnerable can flourish there. Keep serving the least, the lost, the lonely, and the left out. Pray for your leaders to govern justly, because if your city flourishes, you will too. Again, this is not scripture. I don't end that by saying the word of the Lord, like I do when I read from here. But I think God gives us imagination to take the words he spoke to Israel in that day and say, God, what are you doing today? What are you desiring to do through this group of people here and now today in Phoenix? What is God calling us to? How do we make this a home? How do we tend to the garden and see that it flourishes? How do we be fruitful and multiply here and now? And listen, the good news is we don't do it alone. That We have the power of the Holy Spirit of God dwelling in our midst 
empowering us to do this. And just as God told Israel back then, hey, when you look, when you seek, when you pray, when you search, you will find me. I will be right there. You know, those are the same words that Jesus said when he walked the earth hundreds of years later. I have it in Luke 11 for us on the screen. Jesus told people this, Luke 11, 9, I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. I didn't put this one on the screen, but in John 14, Jesus says, hey, if you have seen me, guess who you have seen? You have seen the Father. Seek and you will find. We have found the good God in Jesus. The one who came gave it all on our behalf. The one who came and made a home here on this broken earth, even though his home was on the throne over the kingdom of all of creation. He came and made a home here, exiled to this earth. And he, he tended to it. He saw to the flourishing of the garden. Right? He, he healed the sick. He helped the blind see. He raised dead to life. He spoke good news. Then he was fruitful and multiplying. Because even though he went to the grave, the same spirit that raised him from the dead, he then breathed and gave to his people. And he sent them out to go share that good news, to share the good news of his saving work, and to share the work of the spirit with the multitude, with the nations, not within their walls, but out to Babylon, to Rome, to Egypt, to Phoenix, all the ends of the earth. Jesus fully lived all this out. And if we would look to him, we would find the strength that we need to be his people here today. Amen?